you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to the book of Psalms. More specifically, open it up to book one of the Psalms. Psalm one and book one. Today, we begin a new teaching series that I am calling The Songs of Our Savior. And it comes from book one of the Psalms. The word psalm is from a Greek and Latin word, psalmos. So it really isn't an English word at all. It's just English letters for Greek and Latin letters, psalmos. It comes from a Hebrew word because originally this book that we're studying was written in Hebrew. Mitzmor is one of the common words describing the collection of poems that are in front of us. Mitzmor is a musical term. It describes a song that was to be sung with musical accompaniment. This means that the book of Psalms in the Bible is songs of praise as it has been more popularly defined and used throughout more recent history. Simply put, we're going to study songs and song lyrics. But songs are meant to be sung. They're meant to be played. Specifically, Mitzmore meant to play with music. So we have a book in the Bible that is comprised of five books and They're a bunch of song lyrics, like a hymnal. Think of it as the best hits of Jewish and Hebrew worship, the top 150 songs throughout the history of God's people in Israel. And so we're calling this series The Songs of Our Savior because that's what psalms are. They are songs. And we're saying our Savior because Jesus, our Savior, the Savior of the Christian people, the Savior of Embassy Church, the Savior of many of you as you're listening to this, Jesus Christ sang these songs. We know for a fact in the upper room when Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed as he was doing a new kind of Passover meal, they sang together before Jesus went out to be crucified and die in our place for our sins on the cross. Jesus was singing in order to prepare himself for the greatest act of love, for the most difficult moment of his life. And it wasn't just in preparation for, it was actually in the moment of. The songs of our Savior, Jesus, of the seven things that are recorded on the cross, a good portion of them, Two, in fact, at least, if not a third, are Jesus quoting song lyrics from the book of Psalms as he hangs dying on the cross. Many of you might be familiar with Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or also Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Perhaps the very last words Jesus breathed before he breathed his last were psalms. So therefore, I'm calling this the songs of our Savior, because Jesus was a psalm singer. If these songs were on his lips 
to help him in his death. How much more should these songs be on our hearts to help us in our life? But there's a second reason I'm calling this teaching series the songs of our Savior. The Psalms are not just songs that Jesus sang. The Psalms are songs that sing of Jesus, about Jesus, our Savior. Of the 263 quotations, roughly, I mean, we could debate the exact number, but let's just for the sake of argument say that 263 times in the 27 books of the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, there are direct quotations of the Old Testament. Two-thirds of your Bible is made up of Old Testament. One-third of that Bible is New Testament. New Testament authors make sense of the life of Jesus by quoting the Old Testament. Of the 263 quotations by New Testament authors, 116 of them come from Psalms. Only two books or two authors of the New Testament do not quote a psalm. Is it clear to you why we would want to study the Psalms, the singing of the Psalms, the praying of the Psalms, practicing the practice that Jesus himself did as our example, but also as our substitute as we read and meditate and reflect on the Psalms, we will realize the Psalms are about Jesus, the blessed man who does not walk in the way of sinners, nor stand in the seat of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. He's that blessed man. He is the anointed one, the son whom God has chosen. And so what I want us to do is I want us to read Psalms 1 and 2. And I'm going to argue today that these first two Psalms are like two doors, two gates. Bruce Walkie The Old Testament scholar calls them the wicket gate, wicket gate from Pilgrim's Progress. As you make a pilgrimage through the Psalms, the first two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, are like two gate doors introducing and opening to you the themes, the concepts, the ideas of the entire Psalter, all 150 of them. So let's just first read them. It would be maybe even more appropriate to sing them, but I'm in front of the microphone, so let's just read them. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord, the holy, inspired word of God. May he write its truth on our hearts today and in the coming weeks as we study Psalms 1 and 2 and the rest of book 1 for this first section of working through the journey of the Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2, I'm arguing, are strategically placed at the beginning of the whole 150 psalm collection, not because of when they were written. This is not a chronological dating of Psalm 1 was written first and then Psalm 2. It's not by authorship. The ordering of these psalms is not when they were written or who they were written by, but by theme and theology. This is not a random list of 150 psalms that just got thrown together. They were carefully crafted and selected as poems to rehearse the entire story of the people of Israel. They're telling a story. Why do I say that? And what are the the reasons for this argument? And I started working on this message. I knew I wanted to make this point, and then I realized that this is actually going to comprise the rest of today's sermon. We're outdoors. I don't want to go on for too long. There's kids. It's sunny. I figured, let's not be in a rush. So we're going to cover this point. And Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to a thematic cantata of music that summarizes the people of Israel's life and story. And then after making that point, I'm going to give you some applications. And then we're going to close out for today. And then we're going to pick up Psalms 1 and 2 in more detail, Lord willing, next week. So here you go. Look down at Psalm 1, and you should see, hopefully, a a heading above Psalm 1, not in bold print, not something like the way of the righteous and the wicked. Those bold print headings have been added by an English translator. So you can disregard those unless you just find them helpful, but those are not in the original languages, and, and they're not actually a part of how they were ordered and structured. They're just helps, guides for English readers. Book one, though, That idea comes from the original languages. Additionally, look at Psalm 3 and notice the way in all caps, above Psalm 3, it says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This also is in the original language when these were recorded and put together and given to us as Holy Scripture. In other words, I think that it's important for us to notice right from the start that you have book one, first of five books, And then you have these headings, and then if you look at Psalm 4, a psalm of David. Psalm 5, a psalm of David. Psalm 6, a psalm of David. 
Psalm 7, a Shagayon of David. Psalm 8, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Psalm 9, to the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. You can keep going, but hopefully you get the point. Book 1 has a mention of a psalm of David repeatedly except for Psalm 33 and except for Psalm 1 and 2. And the point of pointing that out is to say that there is no heading above Psalm 1 and there is no heading above Psalm 2. So in this case, it seems as if Psalm 1 and 2 were strategically placed where they are to be introductions like two doors opening up the gate of Book 1 or the rest of the Psalter. Some have said Psalm 1 is actually of all the Psalms and that Psalm 2 is an introduction to specifically the Psalms of David because of how it's referencing a king on the holy hill of Zion, which is none other than David himself. A coronation psalm is what Psalm 2 is often called either way. What I want you to notice is the way that Psalm 1 and 2 function together by the way they begin and way they end. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man. Psalm 2, verse 12. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There's your hinges of these gate doors. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, is about the blessing of being a man who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, and the wind drives them away. The reason for this strength, like a tree that's not blown around, is because of verse 2, delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Verse 12 says, blessed are all those who take refuge in the sun. So again, the hinges of this gate are blessing for those who meditate in the law of the Lord. Blessing for those who delight in the law of the Lord. And blessing for those who kiss the sun, take refuge in the sun, give honor and homage to the sun. And in this way, I think the hinges of the door are made clear that both Psalm, and one two, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are trying to help you see that's what this book is about. The book is about a man, a man who will represent Israel. And that's why we had read for us Joshua chapter 1. Joshua, the leader of Israel, was to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, not depart from it to the right or to the left. He is to be the righteous man planted by streams of water. He is to... In every season, bear good fruit. He is to not have his leaf, leaf wither. And in th this way, Psalm 1 is about that man. Psalm 2 is about the Lord's anointed. It's the word in Hebrew that we get Messiah. So in some ways, you could read Psalm 2 again and read it as the Lord's anointed or the Christ. I have set for me on my holy hill the king, the king who would be the anointed one, the Christ. See that in verse 2, against the Lord and against his Christ. 
So that's Psalm 1, that's Psalm 2, that's how they function as introductions. Now here's the broader theme of the Psalms when you think about them as five books. I want you to turn now in your Bibles to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is the last Psalm of Book 1. And at the end of Psalm 41, you're going to notice verse 13 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen, or um, amen and amen, if you're reading it in Hebrew. Then you're going to notice book two. So book one has a theme to it. And then there's this closing line, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. The same thing happens at the end of each book. So turn now to Psalm 72, the end of book two. Notice the similarities. Starting in Psalm 72, verse 18, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The end of book two. And most people want to argue book one is about the conflict between David and Saul when David is anointed as king in book one. God has set him as his king, but because Saul was still on the throne, he had not become the rightful king on the throne yet until book two, as you have a collection of Psalms that are celebrating David as king, reigning and ruling. So book one, anointed as king, but not yet on the throne, book two, on the throne. And that's your first two books, summarizing the, the kingdom, reign, and rule of the people of Israel. Then in book three, things take a turn. Things get dark. And at the end of book three, you see the refrain again. This is Psalm 89, verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen concluding book three into book four. But when you read through these Psalms, you'll realize that things were going very difficult for David, but then God in his kindness set David on the throne in book two. By book three, it is as if everything's falling apart. God's not keeping his covenant. There's a lot of prayers of confessing, lamenting, arguing, God, I thought you were going to keep on your throne a king who would rule over. So in this sense, we have exile, we have judgment from God, and we have questions about whether he is being faithful. Why is the enemy succeeding and prospering? And this continues into book four. And so throughout book four, you're going to notice that God's responding with his promises. And you'll notice the refrain at the end of 106, verse 48, blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Or in Hebrew, Hallelujah. And then finally, you get to the last and final book. And the theme and the message of the final book is praise the Lord, for the Lord reigns. 
One way to trace out this thematic structure is that in the first couple books, book one and book two, David is all over the place. Then things go really south in books three and four as if judgment was coming and, and David's not on his throne and there's no Psalms of David for the most part in all of books three and four. But then in book five, a whole new collection of Psalms of David is in book five teaching us that God wants to end the Psalter with praise and wants to end the whole book of Psalms in such a way that you would worship the Lord, that he has kept his promises and that even when things got dark and looked difficult, God is worthy of praise. So book five ends in Psalm 144. I want you to go to Psalm 144, and I want you to notice that book five ends in verse 15 of Psalm 144. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Ends with this blessing and then Psalms 145 to the end are repeating this concept. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Notice the way 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. Just turn your eyes through these Psalms and notice praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Repeat it as the first verse of each of these Psalms. Notice the way verse 6 of Psalm 150, the very last line is praise the Lord. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with the trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him in the sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The Psalms end in praise. In other words, you begin with conflict, you begin with turmoil and strife in book one, with David and Saul, and you'll read right in the first psalm of book one, in Psalm three, David is being chased for his life, he's asking for deliverance, and he's praying for it, and we go from a journey of David being anointed and crowned, to exile, judgment, to God's promise, he will reign and rule. So praise the name of the Lord. That's the big idea of the Psalms. And as Bible teacher, scholar Eugene Peterson once said, Psalms takes us on a journey that ends in praise. And it's a long journey. It's 150 Psalms worth. And when you're reading through the Psalms, it takes a while to get to Psalm 145 to 150 and end with this climactic praise. So it is in our lives. A lot of times there's valleys and there's dark days and there's moments of complaint and lament and there's feelings of deep anguish and despair. And so in this way, I think we need to make sure we realize that just like the book of Psalms, the whole Bible takes us on a journey and ends with praise of the Lord. And in that way, that's the hope that you keep in mind this bigger picture. Why should we have hope? Well, because God has promised to put his king on his throne. And this is what we mean by the Psalms being of Jesus, about Jesus. In the same way that David and his line and his kingdom reign and rule will be over the people of Israel, so God has set his king and anointed him as the king 
who would reign and rule over the heavens and the earth. And for the last several weeks, we've been especially meditating on how Christ's ascension to heaven is the fulfillment of the promises, really starting in Psalm 2. And the rest of these kingly, royal, messianic psalms declaring that there will be a king who reigns and rules over God's people and over the nations, and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And so here's what I want us to do regarding uh, applying this to our lives. I want us to just think in this first message about three reasons why we need this teaching series. Three practical kind of takeaways, motivations for why you need the book of Psalms in your life and why this will be helpful for us in our church. First reason is that the Psalms teach us to pray. They're not just prayers for us to read and dissect and look up Hebrew words and nerd and geek out about what the the passage says. They're to be practiced. They're to inform and shape and form you as you pray them. Maybe even learn to sing them. And I say that because it's interesting that most of the Bible is God speaking through the inspired author to us. The Psalms, however, are unique in this sense. The Psalms are speaking for us. The Psalms are words inspired by the Spirit through a variety of authors. No book in the Bible has this many different authors that have been either dedicated to or attributed for. Starting with Moses, if you go to Psalm 90, it says a Psalm of Moses. And then the final editor, probably Ezra, as most people would guess, is a span of over a thousand years. You've got a collection of a thousand years of prayers of God's people. And they're inspired by God. And so instead of them being words to you, telling you what to do, they're words for you, helping you go through life. And as John Calvin has stated, they express every range of human life experience and emotion. There will not be a moment in life that you experience where the psalmists don't give inspired words for you to process them, to pray those feelings, emotions, experiences to God. So you need the Psalms because you need to learn how to pray. You remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples, they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. He really didn't even give them a lecture. His first thing to do was pray. He prayed what we now call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. He modeled for them prayer in a much broader, wider scope the Psalms are doing exactly what Jesus did. They're giving to you a model and they're giving you a wide breadth and a deep scope for you to learn to pray to God. A third of them are laments. Many of us struggle with deep sorrow and you need to learn how to pray to God in deep sorrow. Many of them are praises. How do you deal with great rejoicing, wonderful Euphoric moments in life. The Psalms give us words and language, description and imagery and poetry for these moments. So we need the Psalms because they are instruction. What does Psalm 1 say? Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. The first gate door that opens, it says, 
The blessed man will be one who takes delight in, and then the Hebrew word is Torah. Torah does not mean commandments. Torah means instruction, teaching, catechism. It's the things that you'd want to instill in somebody to form them and shape them as a human being. It's like if you're taking a a child and you're a parent and you're saying, what do I want to do with them over this next 18 years before they leave and go off to college or move away out of my house? What do I want them to know? What instruction do I want to give them? God's people, his children were given Torah instruction. I don't think it's any coincidence that the Psalms are comprised of five books. Can you think of any other section of the Bible that has five books? Well, yeah, the book of Moses that's comprised of five smaller books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the technical narrow definition of Torah or instruction. And when you read Genesis to Deuteronomy, there are laws and commandments in there, but they're mostly narrative stories. The stories of who God is and what he does. So don't think of law of the Lord in this first introductory psalm as introducing, blessed is the man who delights in studying laws. It is that, but it is more than that. Blessed is the man who delights and meditates on instruction. So book, books one through five of the psalms, I think, are giving us a poetic reflection on the Torah. And that's what book one is trying to tell you. You will be a blessed person. You will have a blessed life if you form yourself to the Torah of God's instruction. You center your life around God's word and you let these words form you in your prayer life more specifically. So that's the first reason. We need the Psalms because they give us words. Words to express emotions and feelings that many times you're like, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to pray. So then pray the Psalms. Somebody dies tragically, bring a psalm with you. Memorize them or have a Bible ready and pray over the psalms for them and with them. Second reason, if John Calvin's right and the psalms express every range of human emotion, feeling, and experience that you will ever have in life, then we need the psalms because We are emotional beings and creatures, and we are especially living in a day that has made emotions and feelings ultimate, authoritative, definitive for moral life and category. Some of you have been thinking through this with our church family for the last several months, starting in the end of January and for the last 13, 14 weeks on Saturday mornings. We had a class as a church. The class was called Biblical Anthropology. What does it mean to be a human? Some of you will know that the very first class, I tried to set the tone and the agenda by saying the world that we live in has redefined and shifted to a new definition of humanity. And one of those key terms that we learned was emotivism. Emotivism from Alistair McIntyre, a philosopher that says, the world right now in the U.S. and the Western Hemisphere, we gauge our life, our feelings based on emotions, for better, for worse. And in many ways, when you have emotions as the ultimate guide for morality, you become like chaff. You have no deep substance that holds you down and roots you 
And this is one of the reasons we need the Psalms. We need the Psalms because they teach us how to express our emotions. They teach us the appropriate emotions to have, anger, sadness. Weep with the psalmists. Learn what it means to lament. Learn what it means to confess sin as David does in Psalm 51. And in this way, we need the the psalms to shape us, or in many ways, as we argued in the biblical anthropology class, reshape us. Because we have been shaped by the songs of our culture. Literally, the songs of our culture. There's a theologian that said, you can have all the theology books you want to shape a, a church. I'll just take their music because someone will be more shaped by their music. The things that they listen to and the things that they sing that are on their heart. If I could have one thing, it wouldn't be books of theology or teachings of lectures. It would be music. Do you believe that? Do you think that that's powerful, important, significant? Do you realize how emotionally tied music draws out and connects to the everyday human life and experience? In our class on biblical anthropology, We talked about emotivism, but one of the things I didn't cover that is part of Carl Truman's book that we were using as a guide at parts is that he says, Nietzsche, Rousseau, Karl Marx, all of these philosophers, the majority of us around here, we may have heard their names. Maybe we haven't. No idea who you're talking about, Pastor Phil. Maybe you do. Most of us have not read them. But many of us have been shaped by them as art, music, and poetry has made these concepts ordinary every day in our social imaginary that all of us make sense of the world and imagine the world a certain way because Rousseau's ideas of the Romantic period have been embodied in the poetry and in the art of those that have taken upon the mantle of these ideas in the world. So I want to suggest we need the Psalms in order to reform and reshape a community of people that are being constantly formed and shaped by art and music in our popular everyday world. I remember in Truman's book he says, the dozens, if not thousands, of teenagers, 12-year-olds, sitting, listening to Ariana Grande at a concert, has no idea who Nietzsche is. But they are embodying all that he taught in many ways as they listen to and recite and sing together in harmony the lyrics that provocatively suggest a new way to be human. So I want to suggest we need the Psalms first because we need to learn to pray. Secondly, we need to be formed in our expression of human emotions to know how to deal with the various seasons of our life and know that the psalmists were especially gifted at using word pictures and imagery and poetry to form the heart and the imagination of God's people. Third and finally, we need the Psalms because they are about God. They are so God-centered. They are inviting us to worship and praise. Did you notice that the, the last phrases, go look at Psalm 2 again. 
Notice the last phrases of Psalm 2 are an invitation. They're an evangelistic appeal, demanding, commanding the whole earth, the kings of the earth, the nations. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve. You can also translate that word worship. Serve and worship the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There is no rescue from the wrath of God except refuge in God, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who when he was baptized, the heavens opened up and the Spirit was poured out on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my son, a direct quotation of Psalm 2. Or as you read in the book of Hebrews, the son whom he has set on the holy hill is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins, was buried into the ground, risen again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the father where he sat down and made propitiation for our sins. That one is the Psalm 2 king that was promised. So therefore, kings of the earth, rulers, serve, worship, rejoice, kiss the Son. The word kiss is pay honor, give homage to. It's the idea of someone bowing down before the feet of a king and kissing his feet as the ultimate respect of honor and homage. That is the posture as you enter into the book of the Psalms is that you would be a blessed person. You would be a blessed church. And notice here, this is kings plural, and it's going from Psalm 1 as an individual psalm to Psalm 2 to be a corporate psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's now moving from individuals, blessed is the man, to blessed are the people. Blessed are all they who take refuge in him. United States of America, you will be blessed if you bow down on your face and you kiss the sun. So why don't we conclude with this thought then? We need the Psalms because they are God-centered. They teach you songs and prayers that center your attention on God himself. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You can't go through the Psalms without being repeatedly reminded of God and finding your expression of joy and sorrow and anger in God and turning to him. And more than anything, this is what we need. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his meditation of the Psalms before he was executed for trying to put an end to Hitler and his regime, Bonhoeffer said that the Psalms give juice and life and put passion into your bones. Anybody feel like they need life, spiritual vitality? Then you need the Psalms. Why? Because they turn your attention to God. Navel gazing, looking down and in, depression, thoughts of discontentment, 
They run like crazy when you don't have your eyes set and fixed on God. And the Psalms will protect you and, and guide you and lead you to his throne of grace week after week, day after day. So we need them. We need them to teach us to pray. We need them to express and deal with our emotional feeling-oriented society and learn how to appropriately deal with our emotions in light of God. Some of you, though, will be turned off by this. Maybe you are already. Notice that Psalm 2, verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? To be demanded to pray and fall down on your face and give homage to God for many people is is off-putting. Well, who do you think you are, God? Why do I need to bow down and kiss your feet? And, And isn't that a little like egotistical? God demanding praise the Lord, praise the Lord five times as the book closes out in book five with the concluding five psalms. What's this book about? It takes you on a journey, and the journey ends with, praise me, praise me. I want you to praise me. I'm inspiring these authors so that you would praise me. What do you think about that? Did you know Oprah Winfrey used to go to a Christian church, and when she heard this idea that God wants praise, that he is a jealous God, and he does not want you to praise anyone or anything else, she said, I'm done with Christianity. Anybody here struggling with this concept? I'm done with Christianity, this Bible. Who does, who does this God think he is? Praise me. How dare you talk like that? The simple answer is, who else should you praise? Who else should he, you be encouraged and commanded and directed to turn your attention to? If God were to say praise anything other than himself, then he would be showing that they are superior to him. Only if you're a superior being. Only if you are supreme over all things and worthy of all glory and praise is it only right and fitting for you to demand and encourage praise of yourself. It's wrong for us to say, praise me, Pastor Phil, saying, everyone, I need you to bow down at my feet today and kiss my feet That would be utterly wrong and blasphemous, but it is absolutely right and fitting and appropriate for an entire book, the largest book in the Bible that takes up the most time to have one simple theme, praise the Lord. Give praise to him, center your life around him, give attention to him, kiss the son. In other words, blessed is the man and the woman, blessed is the church and blessed is the nation who bless the Lord. Because by blessing the Lord and giving honor to the Lord, it brings blessing to us. It's this constant cycle of as you bless the Lord, he pours out his blesses on you you because the, the most blessed state you could be is to be centered around the Lord, praising him. And our hope and prayer is that this teaching series in the book of Psalms will do just that. Force us repeatedly to praise the Lord. Let's pray to him now. Father in heaven, we want to come now in the name of your son, Jesus. And we want to pray that the Holy Spirit of God would inspire afresh in our church
songs of praise, even in the midst of sorrow, calamities, tragedies, difficulty, even in the light of horrific sins that we have committed in the past or will commit in the future. I pray that the Psalms would give us words and teach us how to pray and how to talk to you. And so we want to pray now that your spirit will bless us, that we would be men and women who do not walk in the ways of this world and are swept up by emotivism, but we would be deeply, firmly rooted in the word of God and we would delight in it. Not just obey the law, but delight it, love it, cherish it, meditate on it, day and night, memorize it. Oh, Father, we pray that we would be like trees, trees that are planted by a stream of life-giving water, that its roots go down deep, regardless of the season that's going on, that we will not have leaves that quickly wither. And Father, we pray that everything that we do and put our hands to, you would bring prosperity to it. Fruitfulness, God-honoring and God-glorifying prosperity. And protect us from being weak and flimsy like the chaff that blow away every time the wind of music or poetry or cultural ideologies come sweeping through our schools, our neighborhoods, our our workplaces. Let us remember that you know the way of the righteous. You know, you intimately know the way of the righteous. You delight in your people when they follow your commands. And I pray that we would be Psalm 1-like church community and that we would learn how to pray and how to feel and how to think and that we would use the Psalms to shape us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.